Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This episode is sponsored by Roofstock on Chain. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. This week's episode is the second one drawn from the growing digital assets-based finance community in Bermuda. Two weeks ago, we talked to Joe Zulkowski of Realm Insurance about the burgeoning demand for off-chain insurance from crypto companies and the prospect for on-chain coverage solutions for non-crypto insurance. Today, our guests are Dennis Pitcher, Chief Fintech Advisor to the Office of the Premier in the Territory, and Chancellor Barnett, Chairman of Jewel Bank, the first recipient of Bermuda's digital asset banking license. Dennis is one of the key architects of Bermuda's unique strategy around crafting a trusted regulatory framework for crypto companies to set up shop and issue digital assets in the territory. And Chancellor's company is one of the highest profile beneficiaries of that plan. Unlike other jurisdictions that have chosen to develop their own state-led central bank digital currencies, Bermuda wants the private sector to lead the generation of crypto products such as stable coins that are coming. But if you think this business-friendly stance makes Bermuda a locale of lax regulations, think again. The pitch Bermuda is making is that it is already a place of strict but innovative and tried and tested regulatory apparatus something that arose out of its status as a world-leading hub for insurance and reinsurance. The idea is that applicants for a digital asset license must meet some quite stringent criteria before becoming blessed by the Bermuda Monetary Authority. But once that's in place, trust in Bermuda's handling of such licensing will help those entities attract investors and users who need assurances that their money is safe. That's the idea. In fact, one of the few complaints I heard on the island during the Bermuda Tech Summit last month was that the rigorous licensing requirements have perhaps slowed down the process a bit too much compared to say how some of the eager participants might want them to be. But now that Jewel is through as the first Bermuda Digital Assets Bank, it's expected that others will follow. To talk about all of that, the strategy, what it all means and where it's all headed and, and everything else, we'll have Dennis and Chance join us shortly. But beforehand, let's say hello to my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila. 
Hey, Michael. So, yeah, this is all the, the spin-off from the Bermuda trip, which you were sort of only I'm on. I'm still very jealous. To... <laughs> the, the FOMO is now uh, temporarily misplaced. Yet I still just rubbing it. it in, basically. <laughs> you uh, you are indeed. I know. I feel that. I feel that. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But um... yeah. But I mean, look. There's a reason so many folks, uh, despite the fact that I couldn't make it for personal reasons. There's a reason so many folks did fly out to this relatively small island in the middle of the Atlantic to have these conversations. And I think you touched on all this in your monologue. But the amount of innovation that we're seeing both from actors across the ecosystem within this space, leveraging Bermuda's history of being at the cutting edge of how regulation can help support a thriving innovator economy is really powerful. So uh, FOMO aside, I think it's quite telling that the draw that um, that particular event really had, you know, is is for good reason. And I look forward to getting into some of that on our second, second Bermuda episode here today. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. Like you know, the the argument that some of the sort of tougher-minded regulators in the United States make for their rather heavy-handed uh, uh, stance sometimes is, well, the industry will thrive if there is a strong and reliable regulatory structure in place. The problem is like that. That's one thing, but if so long as it's it's also got to be open and and usable, and and I think exactly. that's what's interesting about what Bermuda is trying to achieve is that is that balance between strict trusted reliable but at the same time innovation innovative and, and open so but look you know it's it's early days and uh let's let's hear from the horses uh mouths about how things are going dennis why don't you start us up here welcome by the way to money reimagine just talk us through because you really did play a really important role in laying out the strategy you know did i capture it correctly what, what is the what is the essence of, of what Bermuda's vision is here for how it positions itself in, in this sector? Well, thank you very much, Michael and Sheila, for having me on the show. Uh, I've been a longtime listener and very much enjoy the opportunity to kind of pitch Bermuda and what our strategy is. As you kind of highlighted, we've been in the financial services regulatory space for decades now, predominantly in the insurance industry. And when we looked at this industry, we recognized that there are a lot of parallels to the way we've managed to build that industry and provide clarity in that industry uh, to what we could do with digital assets. Just to highlight the standing of Bermuda, we are in the top 10 globally for FATF technical compliance and effectiveness. And that's not top 10 of comparable jurisdictions, but top 10 of jurisdictions in the world. So very, very high standing in terms of our, our FATF regime. We're also one of only two countries, um, Bermuda and Switzerland, who have regulatory equivalents in the insurance space with the US and the EU. So that provides us a very high uh, standing, something that we're looking to leverage. And when it comes to digital assets, it's very much about saying, okay, what what's changed about this space? There's a lot of attempts to put the put digital assets into traditional boxes. Uh, our approach is very much to look at this as a new asset class. Rather than squeezing into traditional boxes, we're instead trying to say, what are the risks? What's introduced as you apply this technology to reshape finance or to reimagine finance? And how do we mitigate those risks? How do we work with innovators to not constrain innovation, but really allow businesses to map out what the risks are and take a risk-driven approach to what their business models are that allows for a lot of experimentation in the space, a lot of what we're not able to see in other jurisdictions. 
Great. Um, and, and Chancellor, why don't you let us know uh, what drew you to Bermuda? I mean, what, what was the thought process that went through your minds as you made this decision to make it uh, your home? Yeah, there's several things. And thanks for having me, by the way. Excited to be here and uh, enjoy the show. So there was several reasons Bermuda turned out to be a great place to do what we're doing. And I think for the digital asset uh, community globally. I was actually introduced to Bermuda and the premier by a gentleman I think we both might know a bit named Stan Stanlocker. And Stan was the first digital asset company in Bermuda. I think he had the ear of the premier early on and was somewhat formative in the premier's vision of what Bermuda is, could be, and, and is becoming already. So I was lucky enough to be introduced to the premier, to several key people in Bermuda including Sir John Swan, the former premier. And uh, Saad is a, a really, really unique place, given uh, the high reputation and standing that Dennis just mentioned. The history of financial services growth and innovation, the first has been the reinsurance and insurance industries. But then the clarity of vision and the implementation of that digital assets regulatory framework, the DABA framework, in Bermuda is really the thing that is taking an idea or a vision and putting it in a place. And so candidly, when I first went to Bermuda, it was early days. This was 2017, 2018. And the DABA framework was just being passed. And it remained to be seen if this would be a great place to do business and if that would be well received. And even if uh, legislators and the premier had passed this framework, if it was really going to be taken on and adopted and, and driven into existence by the regulator. And fast forward today, many years later, after 2018, I'm really excited to say, you know, with a little bit of luck and a lot of hard work, it turns out Bermuda, I think, is on an incredible path to becoming a great place to base a business or to bank or to uh, utilize services and infrastructure uh, for global digital asset commerce. And so I felt really fortunate to be, in a way, kind of invited uh, to start the bank. The premier shared his vision and actually expressed the need for a digital asset-focused bank onshore, and that Bermuda didn't have a focus one at the time. And, and so I actually looked around and thought I might bring a couple of other groups in, and I realized, oh, this is a great opportunity. I'd love to help out with it. So that was the genesis. And uh, I, I would say Bermuda is a great place and my excitement for it was, I, I think it has the institutional credibility and reputation and processes and compliance to go the distance, so to speak, globally, mm -hmm. to provide underlying infrastructure for global finance in this new set of distributed ledger rails. And I also think it's a great place for people to come and, and set up or just to come and, and utilize those services. So all in all, uh, you know, you don't often get a place that has all those things aligned, uh, a regulator, a great framework, a reputation. And I think there was a couple starts for other offshore crypto or, or a licensed place outside of the large jurisdictions. Malta is an example, and I think that didn't exactly go. So mm -hmm. I, I think Bermuda is likely, and from my perspective, I'm excited because I see a lot of stuff behind the scenes coming on as this really important node in the global system for how do high volume and high growth innovative digital asset companies get banking services. How do they move money around the world? And I think Bermuda can play a great role alongside the U.S. And some of the I'd other love to, to to dig in a little bit about what we mean by a digital asset bank, and and therefore what your structure means for that. The idea of you know high growth companies gaining access to this these funding, 
And, and I will say that one of the things that was interesting when I was there is that folks are very happy about Jewel coming on board because, you know, the same old problem you see all over the world, you know, with all of Bermuda's positive steps being taken towards this, crypto companies still find it hard to get banked, all right? And, and having a local bank that's able to get them, I think, is, is an interesting development. But before we do that, related to this, Dennis, you and I some time back talked about all this, right? But one of the things that drew me to the Bermuda story, and in fact, to that matter, lots of places and sort of island economies, was this idea that throughout the early two decades, really, of the 21st century, there's been a significant de-risking amongst you know, established banks in the United States and elsewhere as compliance standards have risen as terrorist financing rules and you know, AML requirements and everything. And after September 11th, after uh, obviously, you know, the, the Dodd-Frank rules, everything's just made it costly for banks to do business. And so they've tended to actually just for no other reason other than that it's just a priority that they've decided not to go after and not funding and not investing and not providing services to otherwise perfectly legitimate companies and businesses in, in places like Bermuda. So, you know, how important is this strategy of yours for grappling not only with you know the needs of crypto companies that find how to get banked, but also just generally like creating a more fluid, uh, accessible financial system for ordinary Bermudians. Well, thanks, Michael. I think there's there's a couple different kind of considerations. As you've mentioned, there's the de-risking from the global financial system. I mean, Bermuda particularly faces this problem because it's an incredibly small jurisdiction. It's 21 square miles, 60,000 people. It's costly for a foreign bank to want to bank many small jurisdictions. So it becomes a question for many banks, is there the, the returns, the profit to really justify doing the business? Uh, and it's not necessarily that any jurisdiction small like Bermuda or otherwise in the region are doing anything nefarious or wrong. It's just that when you're looking at where the source of money comes from, a lot of banks are saying, well, it's not worth the hassle. Uh, and that just introduces tremendous problems where our, our whole premise, particularly with this industry, is to drive more inclusion. And so how do we actually do that on a broader scale? Uh, on another uh, avenue, it would be looking at technological inclusion uh, or exclusion. I think when we, we last spoke uh, some time ago in Davos, we covered how Bermuda, despite having um, very strong infrastructure, and being kind of first world in terms of technology and infrastructure and, and cell networks and internet connectivity, we actually lack a lot of the, the financial services that you'd expect uh, for such a jurisdiction. We don't have Square and PayPal and kind of the traditional fintechs, Revolut and whatnot, because again, being a small jurisdiction makes it harder to attract those players. So that's really helped shape our strategy where we're trying to focus on what are those key things that we can do now to pivot our focus, to say, bring in and attract the innovators who will lead tomorrow so that we're not excluded. So we're actually one of the first places that you can really demonstrate this new technology, provide that high standard, high compliance, high regulatory environment that allows you to show other jurisdictions how to be involved, how to uh, stay at that high standard so that we can remain included, both Bermuda as well as other jurisdictions that face the same challenges. Okay, so Chancellor, on that note, tell, tell us specifically about Jules' business strategy and you know how are you filling that void that that you know Dennis and I were talking about there, both for, for you know crypto companies and for that matter any ordinary you know person or company that's 
based in these sorts of places and, and needs you know a different uh, uh easier access to, to to funding yeah so there's a, a couple of different layers to this and part of it is implicit and included in our regulatory status and our licensing so jewel is actually not the limited digital asset bank that was envisioned and introduced under law previously in Bermuda. We're actually a full bank in Bermuda. And not to get into too much complication, but the big difference is we can bank global clients, not just Bermudian clients. And we're also a DABA licensee. And that's really focused on issuance of digital assets, in particular, issuance of stable coins directly from a bank. Our primary focus in the first year or two of the bank is institutional. And so the big need, the big missing piece of infrastructure for Bermuda to grow alongside the DABA framework and bringing people was a bank that could provide those businesses, those institutions, the services they need to move money around the world, to settle in real time, to do the other side of crypto trades. And so that's really the market we're focused on in welcoming into Bermuda global, primarily non-US firms, but US firms too, that have high volume needs that are well-regulated and one another jurisdiction to de-risk their banking. And so you said that earlier, a lot of digital asset firms have pain points around banking. And so the large firms, large exchanges, market makers, OTC desks, usually keep two to three, sometimes four banking relationships or more in order to de-risk their business. So Bermuda is coming online and Jewel is coming online to satisfy that pain point, to, to meet that pain point for the institutional banking and money movement services that really drive their profits. And so we'll be helping large exchanges, market makers, move their client money into an account and settle or withdraw. That's our core business. We're much more payments focused. And then we'll also be doing that through stable coins. That's our primary focus, but not our only focus and not our only obligation to Bermuda as a full bank. We also have obligations and things we're excited to do to be helpful to everyday Bermudians. And so I think there's an opportunity. Uh, Bermuda is a small country. There's four other banks. And I, I would say there might be some underserved needs and certainly a new bank that can come in with new technology infrastructure and a different approach really focused on how can we leverage distributed ledger technology to benefit and potentially bank people that would be harder to bank for others is something we think about and will likely get to a little bit later. And our regulator ha has said that they'll give us a little bit of time to focus on the institutional stuff first, as long as we also make good on the, the retail, if you will. So I think there's a huge opportunity there, and we're, we're trying not to do both at the same time, but we're excited to provide value to Bermuda in that way. Web3 is magic. In a world where you can buy apes and punks instantly, is real estate the next step? Roofstock OnChain has pioneered the ability to buy homes instantaneously using Web3 technology, while opening up new financing options with DeFi. Follow the White Rabbit. Find us at onchain.roofstock.com. That's onchain.roofstock.com. It's really interesting. You know, I, um, I was thinking a little bit just about licensing regimes as a general matter, right? And so uh, in the United States, of course, we've got New York DFS, which is really the, you know, the, the main um, licensing agency and authority for various kinds of entities that are operating in the space. And one of the challenges, of course, is is the timing of process, you know, getting through the assessment period, the maintenance kind of on your records that has to happen, you know, things like that. And so, so I'm curious to, first of all, just hear about 
Jules' experience with that, with the process as being the very first to kind of go through this, but also Dennis, just how you thought about how heavy to make that process, right? And like what went into the decisions you made around what you were assessing at what points in time, and also how over time you expect those who are licensed to, you know, maintain their their license. Like what is that going to involve? And is that going to be something that could affect business operations? I'm just curious to get initial thoughts on that since this is so new. And maybe we'll just start with Jules' experience, Chance. Sure. Well, I, I would say, you know, I fancy us making a good choice with Bermuda, but you don't always know everything that happens. So there's a little bit of luck involved. The Bermuda Monetary Authority, I think, uh, to Dennis's credit, to the Premier's credit and their credit, have really taken on the inherent and new and different risk appetite of digital assets and developed an incredible sense of fluency and sophistication to start licensing complex firms that are doing trading, that are doing stablecoin operations, that are doing lending. And so our experience with that, candidly, was on the front end, I think everyone was going through a learning experience. How do you blend these things? What is this framework? How is it actually going to work when the rubber meets the road? And so from my perspective, and Jewel didn't happen overnight, it was many years in process. I, I think there was a mutual growth and understanding of what is Bermuda going to be? How do we put safeguards in place, but also do this, what I would say in some senses, higher risk activity. And I think Bermuda is a great place. At the end of the day, we got it done. There's clarity on we want to provide services to firms and uh, activities that in other jurisdictions they might have a challenge with, and, and they don't have the specific appetite to do that. And Bermuda has been clear we want to court these people. So I think that was a huge benefit to us as a bank saying, we're we're looking at this head on. We want to provide institutional services to digital asset firms and having alignment from uh, the premier government, Dennis, and the regulator ha has really been an important uh, component of this. And then building the bank and getting it right on the technology and execution side. But I would say that's a huge piece. And I think it'll become a big differentiator and a value to the community, I think, globally, where people can come into Bermuda and do business. You know, Dennis, as I mentioned in the in the opening there, you know, I think one thing that's distinct in, about Bermuda's approach here to say that of the Bahamas or lots of other places as well that are like building their own central bank digital currency, you've sort of taken this private, let the private sector sort of establish these products perspective, right? Maybe talk us through that. Then you talk about something like I think this concept of a currency standard as opposed to a CBDC that's owned by the central bank. So what's the rationale behind that? And and what what do you see as the opportunities associated with this concept? First of all, just explain it. What do you mean by a currency standard? Well, so I guess to to start off with, the technology that we're we're dealing with is moving so quickly. And that's what is one of the big risks. For a small jurisdiction, it's really hard for us to pick the winning technology. And we talked about financial exclusion or exclusion uh, tech exclusion uh, earlier. And it's one of the big challenges we face is that if we end up picking the wrong technology, we could readily lock ourselves out uh, of the future. And I think that's a, a pivotal um, direction or pivotal uh, part of our strategy is ensuring that we do find ways to still be included in the, the future of global finance. Uh, so when you say are we doing a CBDC or are we embracing the private sector? We're not doing a retail CBDC, primarily because of the risks involved. Uh, central banks aren't really experts at technology 
or retail interactions. So it makes a lot of sense to embrace private sector issued stable coins that are backed perhaps by bank deposits or or one-to-one fiat backing, not necessarily algorithmic and a lot of the experimentation we're seeing, but kind of a safe digital dollar. Um, and, and in Bermuda's case, it's the Bermuda dollar. So rather than trying to figure it out directly, we're trying to invite players in to digitize the Bermuda dollar, experiment with what works, uh, and try and figure out the the course forwards that can be replicated to other jurisdictions. And uh, Chance and Jewel Bank are one example of, a, of an entity that has been licensed for issuing stable coins and is working on uh, digitizing the Bermuda dollar themselves. We also are attracting in other players to do so. Part of where this whole notion comes from is, as you mentioned, this currency standard uh, concept. And that is, is kind of a take on a lot of the discussion that's happened around the future of finance, the future of money, as it's reimagined over the next uh, few decades. Uh, as we look to historically having had a gold standard, um, where fiat tended to be backed by a singular physical asset, uh, transitioning onto the dollar standard, where we've seen global reserves uh, be uh, backed by uh, US dollars. And then looking to the future, and I mean, a lot of the space, uh, there are quite a few players in the space that have gotten very excited about the prospect of Bitcoin being a like a Bitcoin standard, as it's called. And that served as a bit of an inspiration for ourselves, because when you look at it, fundamentally what's happening is, is that this technology is unlocking a lot of potential innovation. Um, the cost of issuing new forms of currency or money or digital representations of value and the cost of exchanging those representations of value is effectively approaching zero. And that's a fascinating thing because it means that there will be a proliferation of, of different means of holding value and exchanging value. And thus, what do we really need a singular form of reserve in the future? Do we need to hold specifically gold or dollars or Bitcoin? Are we more so looking to a future where we could back uh, reserves or individuals could hold any amount of money, uh, countries could hold any amount of assets that they wish? So if you're taking that kind of approach, the most important thing to ensure you can be included in that vision in the future is to say that we need to be able to have interoperability between these various forms of money. It needs to be compatible. Kind of like when we when we talk today on the internet, we use all of these different platforms, Zoom and, and Facebook and WhatsApp and uh, Signal and TikTok, many different ways of communicating. The challenge is we have to do this dance of figuring out what we're going to communicate on before we can actually communicate. And that's a really crazy notion. When you think of something like email, I don't need to know anything about what you use. I can just know your address and send you a message. Exchanging value in the future needs to be that interoperable. It needs to be something you don't have to think about. You can really just know an address and send a message and know that I don't have to think in what kind of value you wish to receive. I should really have choice and control over the value I want to be able to send and you receive whatever you want. Uh, and such, that drives our overall strategy of saying we need that standard of interoperability, that currency standard, to drive user choice. 
It also helps define why we started with digitizing dollars, um, because that's the dominant currency that everyone uses today for the mainstream. I mean, fiat money. So it's the, the starting point, not necessarily the ending point, to be able to try and say, how do we as fast as possible get a wallet on every phone? How do we get everyone plugged in? And how do we start moving towards a world where an individual, a country, an entity can hold value however they wish? Uh, and that's kind of our, our overarching strategy. That is a that's a heck of a strategy. It's really comprehensive, but a lot of places that we can kind of tease out. I'm curious. Well, first, there's a lot of things I'm curious about, but I'm curious mostly or initially about the idea of interoperability with this kind of uh, within this framework, right? So, how you think about so this if you have this idea of a of a stable Bermuda dollar, stable coins are certainly something that many people are familiar with, and the idea that we're kind of pegging this to something namely the Bermuda dollar, is really interesting. But then if you kind of look at the turtles all the way down, right, the Bermuda dollar itself is, of course, pegged to the U.S. dollar. And so there's an interesting question about how are you thinking about the global economy when it comes to kind of that framework, right? Like, how are you thinking about the connections into not just the U.S. dollar, but also interoperability in general? We've heard from Christine Lagarde, they want to roll out a digital euro. Presumably, that's going to be something that's pegged to the euro, right, in kind of a one-to-one way. In some fashion, it'll be a CBDC, but it's going to have a euro coin that people are, I think, is already launched from what I understand. So you're going to have all these different opportunities. What is the sort of pathway to creating operability? And I guess, Chance, I'll go to you first, because this is kind of really something I'm sure is top of mind for you. But what's, what's the, yeah, how do you make sense of all this? And how do you map these things to each other? So uh, I I can actually riff off of the great work that Bermuda and, and Dennis and the premier have done around the currency standard, that's first and foremost top of mind for us. So we don't look at, and our vision at Jewel isn't to get in and issue the Jewel US dollar stablecoin, issue the Jewel Bermudian dollar stablecoin, and try and take over with it. In fact, our strategy is to serve as the underlying banking infrastructure and as an API that other firms can use, whether it's our stablecoin or others, and really serve as an open utility. So our view, our architecture, our vision is that we can be multi-chain, multi-currency and provide these as services, maybe even issue stable coins as a service for others. Now, buried under there is a lot of stuff of banking, licensing, regulation, and technology. I believe that, and we're working to generalize the system so that if someone wants to deposit a dollar in Jewel, we can issue that as a stable coin over an API in multiple chains and help multiple different communities. As long as there's a standard for what a deposit is, what reserves are, and then what's acceptance and how it's issued, I'm really excited about the ability not just for Jewel to be a bank doing this, but for other banks to come online and build on top of the existing banking and payment rails, SWIFT and the like, ACH, a separate set of distributed ledger fiat currencies with stable coins and CBDCs. Now, Exactly implicit in that is it's not as simple as it sounds because you can't just trade one chain. Not everyone wants to do swaps. How complicated will this get? My perspective is that it's going to still take a long time to roll out CBDCs. And even when that happens, the money supply, lending, uh, all the activities that happen commercially won't happen directly for businesses at a central bank. That's not what a central banks generally do. And I don't think the rule should or will change personally. 
So what you'll see is banks having to come online and move onto those rails and work with clients and do services on the new rails. So I think implicit in the CBD structure, whether that becomes the dominant new form of currency or not, I think it's still a ways off. Uh, and so we just play a role. And what we're interested in is actually having the discussions with regulators and with groups doing great work like the Center Consortium, uh, it's Coinbase and Circle, and Circle is the issuer. Are there other stablecoins they want to issue? And is there a multiple issuer model where other banks can play in either central banks or commercial banks like ours? So that's my vision and hope. And we're starting by issuing on specific chains, but with an approach to say, we want to generalize that so that we can issue on multiple chains and accept standards. And I think that's the hard plumbing of banking and payments that doesn't move at light speed. But what I'm excited about is it's the virus, the meme, it has been infected in the system. Distributed ledger technology, stable coins aren't going away. I think people talk about them as though they're future. The future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. Look at the size and the volumes. So I, I think the world will move there, but it's a three to 10 year timeline. And you know, in banking and payments, those are the timelines you work on. And I'm excited to be a part of and help with some of those standards and, and ideally play a role at Jewel. Dennis, I'd love to hear from you just how you think about contextualizing this in the global the global system. I like to simplify things right down and look at what's what's kind of the the big shift happening because of the technology. And I, I try to use analogies as much as possible because I have to deal with politicians and uh, uh, stakeholders that aren't necessarily big into this space. So one of the big ones I really like to focus on is looking at the nature of how messaging has changed. I think it's something Michael and I, or Michael uh, and Sheila, we, we spoke on a last panel about. Messaging went from being something that was very kind of one-to-one. -one. You could pick up the phone, you could call someone, you could send a message, you could kind of broadcast uh, via, say, a newspaper but it was challenging to do. Uh, when we look at messaging or the act of sending a message today, we have so many incredible ways of doing so. We can send uh, a person-to-person -person message, person-to-group, uh, broadcasting. We can uh, do put selective rules and conditions around message. We can put delays on messages. We can do it as video. We can overlay and, and play back and, and do incredible things with video these days. So technology has really reshaped how we communicate. It's allowed us to put those kind of rules around it and make it programmable. A lot of that is, is what's coming from money. Uh, we're able to put rules and constructs around how we share and distribute money and how we drive incentives for participation in society. And I think that's a lot of what you talk about on this show. So I don't really need to get too big into it. The key part is saying that if if really what we're introducing is the ability to make money programmable, then the challenge we start running into is it's really hard to have one technology that solves all problems, especially in the early days. And I think that's the biggest roadblock to the notion that we're going to launch a unifying CBDC that's going to solve all problems. Is it going, it's suddenly going to handle micropayments of say you have a small amount of uh, money that you're going to pay per mile usage of your car as you drive down the road, shift completely restructuring how we pay cut taxes and changing the notion of, say, a business driver using the, their car every day versus the granny that's going to get her groceries. I mean, why are they taxed the same in, in terms of licensing? Why isn't it per use? Can it be per use? And then you have large multi-billion dollar institutional trades 
that have a lot of compliance rules and considerations that need to be built into them. So when we look at these kind of structures and we say, well, it's fundamentally about being able to make it programmable, to be able to handle different kind of requirements. Buying a coffee is a wholly different transaction than doing uh, international finance. Uh, how is one CBDC solution going to solve all that? It's kind of baffling to think that it's even considerable that that could be done. So it means that there will be private sector solutions, regardless of what governments roll out. And hence, why not embrace the private sector solutions from the start? So I feel like you just set me up here, Dennis, in a good way, because you and I had a very interesting conversation over a, over, over a swizzle, I think it might have been, one night in, in Bermuda. And it harkened back to a conversation that I think we'd had a number of years ago. Um, again, and it gets to this core problem of the challenge faced by individual Bermudians or Bahamians or you know anybody, Jamaicans or anyone in a small sort of island economy uh, where there may well be really strong, viable infrastructure for large-scale businesses and particularly large finance, but yet they're locked out of the financial system. And I think the Bermuda case is so interesting for what it says to this, these possibilities precisely because of what we were talking to about before, and that is the, the role of the dollar, the role of the, the, pe the, the Bermudian peg. Again, I'm, I'm going to editorialize a bit here, so just, just bear with me because I think I'm going to set this up a little bit. But as anybody listening to this show knows, spent quite a bit of time in Argentina, and Argentina was formative in the way that I started to understand a lot about, about what, what happens with money. And of course, Argentina famously had to break its peg in, in 2001 which a peg that was set in to try to control the hyperinflation problems of its past. And it, it had to because Brazil had devalued, the dollar was getting stronger, the, the Federal Reserve was hiking interest rates, and in, in Argentina was phenomenally uh, uncompetitive as, as, a, as an exporter, as a, as a tourism destination, or anything compared to any other country in the world, but specifically its neighbors. And, and therefore, there's this core problem, right? Now, in Bermuda, you also have a dollar peg introduced for very different reasons. This is not solving a hyperinflation problem. There's a very different reason. And there's no way that you could entertain getting off that peg, certainly not now, uh, probably never, uh, because it would be so harmful to, to this very important financial sector that you have. And so the question then becomes, if that ever becomes a competitive challenge for other parts of the Bermudian economy, and obviously tourism is a key one here, where although, yes, you have a lot of US citizens, those citizens could now go to Canada and get a, a cheap rate or Mexico or wherever. You have a competitive challenge here, and that affects local Bermudians. So is there an outlet here? You, you started talking there, interestingly, about how, why does there need to be one single currency for every transaction? You know, Cuba introduced the opposite, the, a, a terrible, completely broken uh, dual currency system because it was a way for them to capture foreign currency and at the cost of uh, its local publication uh, population who were condemned to use this this rotten local currency. But is there an opposite version of that in which you could you could use this technology to enable a different payment rail, a different payment structure for the local economy and keep, say, the financial sector just essentially using dollars, the sta stablecoin dollars? I mean, do you ever imagine a world now? through this structure where you could actually have your cake and eat it too, where you maintain the stability that's needed for an essentially dollar-based financial system, financial sector, and create these uh, other almost local currency models that, that allow for a more competitive uh, exchange rate, essentially, 
for the local economy. Absolutely. I think that's largely what we're talking about happening with this kind of reimagination of, of money. Um, mm-hmm. It's largely about aligning incentives and building communities uh, and providing them with the tools to incentivize each other. So when we talk about tourism, for example, it becomes fascinating when you start considering, well, how can we roll out a, or how can not necessarily the, the government specifically roll out, but how can we incentivize the local tourism industry to create its own collaborative kind of currency that can be used both as a reward system as well as an incentive system that may allow us to drive more spending on island and incentivize more spending on island? How can you reward people for uh, sharing their experiences on social media, for going to one activity and then kind of in- incentivize people to go to others, to maybe try things that um, are not as well marketed or not as well a- advertised? Similarly, how can you drive incentives within a, a local community? We have economic empowerment zones, perhaps creating coins that are specially towards that that are usable within those poor set of businesses that can create a model that allows you to drive more more spending and interest. There are a lot of ways to to kind of rethink uh, how this works without necessarily wholesale disrupting uh, our the dominant currency that we're using, the the Bermuda dollar, which of course, as you said, is is more or less pegged though through a currency board arrangement. Uh, so it's our focus isn't necessarily to say we're going to try and figure all these things out. We want to attract players with ideas to come in and experiment on island. Can we create these models? Can we uh, try them out? Can we see how they work? And can we show the world how the uh, kind of digitization of money is really allowing for for new things to happen, for new experiments to happen, for new uh, inclusion to happen? How do we make it accessible for people who don't have bank accounts? Because despite Bermuda being uh, a very kind of wealthy country by GDP per capita, that's still a problem. Uh, And these are the kind of problems that we really need to be solving because the general compliance regimes that are required around the globe exclude a lot of people because of how complex and expensive they are to onboard. So what are those solutions? We want the industry to come to Bermuda and help us figure them out. That, that's just a great place we, to, to end it on. Uh, unfortunately, we do need to close because I could just, you know me, this is one of my favorite topics. It can keep going for ages here. And I would like to have heard uh, Chance's take on how you know a bank like his and, and other crypto providers can facilitate that interoperability across these other other sort of stores of value and other representations of value that enable new incentive structures for communities. I think just such a rich topic. And I, and I must say, Dennis, it's great to hear that that spirit of financial inclusion and, and accessibility is still driving where you guys are going with this because that was that very early conversation that I had uh, with the Premier back in, in that meeting in, in Davos in 2008 that was sort of like, he seemed to get it, that that's it, that there's a chance to actually really open opportunities for people i know that bermuda is you know there, there are people some people in bermuda who are looking for the payoff immediately and that there's like political challenges and telling people wait there's something coming but i do think that there's some real opportunity here so it's great to have this rich conversation thank you both dennis pitcher uh, chancellor barnett uh, for for being with us today uh thank you sheila as always my partner in crime And thank you to all of you listeners. Uh, Do come back again next week for another edition of Money Reimagined. Bye for now.
You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau, with announcements by Adabi Levine, and our executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is by Shepard. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.